evening and welcome to the 2018 Cambridge Science Festival. Uh, we're delighted to have Eleanor Atom with us today who will talk about, uh, this, is, this is my favourite title a lot of this uh, edit pun, uh, Walking It Down, Lessons on Obesity from Our uh, Canine Friends. Please give her a warm welcome. All right, so um, I'd like to start off by introducing you to Woody. May I refer you to my previous comments about technical issues? <laughs> um, now, some of you here may have actually met Woody over the years, and he was a real gent of a dog, this chap, but he got himself into all sorts of scrapes over the years in the pursuit of food. Um, first video gone, no sound, slightly worrying, might go a bit peaked on what later, but we'll, we'll see. Um, but. Um, at the end of my talk, I'm going to tell you specifically about my research in Labradors and what it's told us about the biology of human obesity. Um, but before then, I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about dog evolution and why that's made dogs special. And before that, um, even further, um, about why dogs are worthwhile as studying as what we call animal models of human diseases. Because, I mean, initially as a vet, I'm interested in dog diseases for the, the dogs themselves. Um, I see all sorts of things in my patients which are more common in particular dog breeds, and it, it tells me that the genetics are likely to be to blame. Um, but but I'm, I exist in a, in a scientific funding milieu and in a research institute that tells me that actually it's really interesting to study human diseases as well. And actually studying dogs as models of human disease isn't quite as daft an idea as it might sound. And in fact, that goes for studying animals in general. Um, because often the questions that we want to ask about how diseases develop um, are too complicated or the experiments we would need to do are too invasive to study them in the ultimate model organism, which would really be human beings. And so instead, the vast majority of biomedical research relies to some extent, usually on laboratory animal models of disease, and whether they're rodents or zebrafish or fruit flies or, or microscopic worms, um, those organisms can be um, manipulated genetically with great precision to do very particular things to their genome so that we can then study the knock-on consequences of perturbing one genetic system or another and they can be phenotyped, they can be measured, the consequences of those genetic manipulations can be measured in, in exquisite detail. And that really brings forward the progress of biomedical research in great leaps um, in many experiments. Um, but you can see that these are a long way from humans. Um, visually, that's very obvious, but also these guys exist in laboratories, they're in a very sterile environment, and they usually have to be tweaked somehow in their genetics or in their, um, by using kind of chemicals or other stimuli to, sti to, to prompt them to develop disease. Um, and in contrast, my patients live with their owners and develop many of the same diseases spontaneously in that environment. And when we think about dog disease, um, there are huge similarities between the conditions that my patients develop and their human, those of their human owners. Not, not in um, kind of family household dyads, but it, as two species. Um, dogs get bronchitis and need to use inhalers like humans do. They get severe arthritis and have to have hip replacements. Um, and sometimes there are quirks in the way that dogs develop disease compared to humans that make them particularly valuable for study. So for instance, the picture on the bottom left for you um, is of uh, a dog's limb affected by a bone cancer called osteosarcoma. And that's fairly uncommon, rare in humans. But in dogs, unfortunately, it's quite common in some large breeds. And so it means that we can reach a critical mass of patients to study, particularly when it comes to genetics, more quickly um, in my veterinary patients than we could by collecting humans with the same condition. And the same goes for various heart diseases, that there are similarities or indeed contrast to, to owners that make dogs particularly valuable. But the thing that makes my patients particularly, you know, really special when it comes to placing them as a model for human disease is not so much their similarities, but their genetics 
differences. Um, and that's because over the generations since they were first domesticated from grey wolves somewhat like this, what dogs have been bred by humans to have um, great diversity across the species, but actually within modern dog breeds, very little diversity. And that has real knock-on consequences for the dogs themselves, but also for me as a geneticist. And so there, there are kind of two working theories of dog domestication that, that really hold water. The first is that perhaps um, the earliest domesticated dogs were kind of camp followers with hunter-gatherer populations and, th and they perhaps followed the hunt and fed off um, discarded carcasses and so forth. The other is that dog domestication really took, um, took flight when humans started to live in village-like settlements with rubbish dumps and that perhaps wolves came and hung out around human settlements to scavenge from our wastes. Um, and gradually, those wolves which were bolder and less stressed by the interaction and perhaps more friendly or less aggressive to the humans that were around were tolerated more by the owners and um, more willing to um, or more able to reproduce because the physiological effect, effects of stress being near humans can be quite profound. Um, so that those dogs which were more confident, which were, were more happy to live around humans, were gradually selected for in the population. And um, certainly in, it, a lot of work's been done looking at the kind of signatures genetically of, of what defines a domesticated dog as compared to a wolf. And there are two main groups of genes that have been changed over the years. The first um, are to do with how the brain develops, and that figures, right, because if you're going to have a profound difference in your behaviour from um, wolves to domesticated dogs, um, then it would make sense that your genes to do with brain development are going to be different. The other group of genes um, that have altered are to do with how dogs process carbohydrates, starchy foods. And again, that figures as, as our hunter-gatherer ancestors started to turn into farmers and were producing cereals and grains, and those were the foodstuffs that dogs might have access to, perhaps those which could digest and absorb and thrive on those diets um, were um, selected for, and that genetic signature has been entered into the modern dog population. But they, um, before too long, it, it's very clear from the archaeological record that dogs became a lot more than camp followers who kind of hung out around human populations. Um, and I, I rather like this story from a Siberian archaeological site where um, researchers have found two kinds of dog skulls around <coughs> the same human population from around 9,000 years ago. Uh, and they separate into being a class of dogs, dog-like wolves, wolf-like dogs, not, not quite clear which, which were big and strong and had powerful jaws and very strong bodies. And another set which were rather finer and leaner and looked a bit more like um, modern Alaskan Malamutes, if anyone knows those dogs, who are still today used for sledding. And the researchers and the pub the who published this paper presented that as evidence of very early breed formation and specialisation. Um, the humans who lived here were known to hunt polar bears, and so maybe those big strong dogs went off on polar bear hunts, whereas the smaller, finer dogs um, were involved in pulling sleds and working cooperatively with their humans that way. And there's also some kind of rather touching evidence um, in the archaeological record of how dogs have had much more than a utilitarian um, role in these ancient societies. So in the Natufian burial um, from Israel on, on the far side of the screen, you can see a human skeleton. And if you look carefully under, next to the head under the human's hand, you can see there are a collection of smaller bones which came from a puppy. And to see those kind of uh, that, that co-burial in a very specific way is very striking to me. And similarly, the, the jawbone um, on my side of the screen, which, is, um, which was retrieved from a, a German archaeological site over 14,000 years ago, um, shows evidence in these kind of lesions, the rings on the teeth, of a really nasty viral disease called distemper. 
And actually, there were two sets of these rings. So, so this dog must have gone through two rounds of distemper during its early life before dying at about six months old and being buried alongside humans. Um, and what that says to the vet who reported these findings is that somebody looked after this puppy. You don't, you don't make it through a bout of distemper without support and nursing. And so clearly these societies, who must have been under enormous pressure to kind of just survive, somehow also managed to put their resources towards um, looking after what it's very tempting to kind of call pets, really, because of those very kind of touching, intimate evidences from the two sites of, of human-animal interaction and, and bonding. Um, but really over the generations, yes, humans no doubt loved and were very fond of their dogs. They also bred them and breeds were created. But that was primarily a, a breeding for function. And there's lots of evidence from the um, genetic uh, studies of, of dog populations that there have been big, big movements in terms of dogs from the east coming to the west and vice versa. Lots of inbreeding so that breeds were improved by adding... Um, different breeds or different strains of dog from elsewhere. And really, that means that over the most of dog evolution, there's been masses of genetic diversity across the species. But that came to an end in the Victorian era. So in 1859, the first dog show was held. Um, and there was really quite a craze for dog fancying in Victorian Britain. Um, initially kind of working men showing their retrievers or, or, um, or terriers, but it quickly became a popular pursuit of some key members of the aristocracy, so then it got trendy. And there was this huge craze for dog shows, which went from this rather informal setup to the kind of phenomenon of, of crufts, which even by 1880s was a, a, a sight to, to behold. But it, along with that great expansion came a degree of kind of um, dysregulation that upset for the gentlemen who felt they had kind of prize-winning dogs and one week a dog would win at one show and then be unplaced the subsequent week with a different judge. And so in, into, in that kind of spirit of outrage that, that particular dogs weren't being done well by different judges entered um, the Reverend, who we saw a couple of slides back, and Sir Wallace Shirley, who is generally the um, gentleman um, credited with founding the model, modern kennel club. And in 1873, he and, and the Reverend, who you saw two pictures um, earlier, and ten other gentlemen founded the Modern Kennel Club and set down standards for what they considered to be the correct size, shape, performance um, of particular breeds of dog. And just the following year, they um, published the first stud book. And into these annually published stud books went a register of the dogs who'd been shown, who'd been placed, and their pedigrees. And soon after came an um, even more formalised registration process, so that only dogs who'd been shown, who were proven of that breed, were allowed to be registered as whichever breed it was. And so that got us where we are today. Over the subsequent <laughs> 150 years or so, um, these, the, the tendency for dogs to be bred um, for form, for the show ring, has led to the really extraordinary diversity of size and shape and hair colour and coat and behaviour and, and things that we see, so that modern dog breeds are really a far cry from their wolf ancestors. Um, and people value these breeds enormously. It means that we can go and choose to take home a Labrador or a Collie or a, a German Shepherd and have a pretty good idea of what they're going to look like, what size they'll be, and, and what their temperament's going to be like. Um, but unfortunately, it also comes with very serious consequences for canine health, because today there are 215 breeds registered with the Kennel Club and almost 400 Kennel Club recognised breed-related genetic disorders um, within modern dogs. And in general, um, they pop up for two different reasons. The first is when we breed for something that we want in a, in a particular um, family of dogs and a deleterious disease-causing mutation kind of piggybacks along for the ride. And the second um, 
happens more by chance in that a mutation can just arise within a population because these things happen, but that dog breeding practices perpetuate them within the population so that things that should be rare and are rare in the general population become very common within one breed. And so I've got a couple of examples of that. I don't know if any of you know Rhodesian Ridgebacks. They're really handsome dogs. They're often very um, good family pets, but originally they were developed as lion hunting dogs and guard dogs in, in Africa. Um, and, and those who initially developed the breed and recognised them claimed that this, um, this dorsal ridge that you can see on the dog on the right um, was associated with particularly fierce and, and kind of bold dogs who did that job very well. I can't believe there's really much in that, but, but you know, it certainly went down in history. And, and crumbs the clues in the name, they're Rhodesian Ridgebacks. And so really people have bred for this ridge. Now we know, what knows what we know which mutation causes it. Um, this is what we call a, a dominant mutation. Everyone has two copies of every gene in our body. Um, in order to get the ridge, only one of them has to carry the ridge mutation. Um, but the problem is that if you breed from a dog who has one ridge, one ridge gene and one wild type normal gene, um, if you breed from a pair of dogs like that, some of the puppies will be born like the one on the left without a ridge. And that's unsellable, undesirable. Um, and um, so breeders really want to avoid that happening. As a consequence, they tend to, there's a high um, proportion of dogs um, of ridgebacks with two copies of this mutation. That means they're sure to have the ridge, but unfortunately it also predisposes them to a really nasty condition called der dermoid sinus. And what you can see here is an X-ray of a dog's neck, the white bones of the spine stand out at the bottom and the kind of grey fuzzy bit above is the muscle and skin over the back of the neck. And the vet investigating this case has injected a contrasting um, visible material into a little tube that's developed in the dog's neck. This is what we call the, this is the, the dermoid sinus. This is quite a mild case and, and it will be fixable by surgery. But actually these can be very severe and they can encroach down as far as the spinal column um, and certainly require surgery um, and um, can be life-threatening in some puppies. And so what we have an example of here is a very direct association between breeding for a cosmetic thing, a ridge, leading to a disease. Um, and in this case, it's the same gene that causes the problem. But there are other examples where a nearby gene kind of piggybacks along for the ride and, and causes a problem um, because of selection for one trait or another. The other group of, um, the other kind of big, big set of reasons of, of why um, inherited disease is common in our, our modern dog breeds is summarised on this slide. This is a, a condition of, of Brazilian terriers, which are a thing, apparently. Um, they're fairly unusual dogs in, in Finland, where this paper was written and, and the dogs were reported. Um, and that's probably underlying the, the kind of pickle that this breed got into in, in the country. Um, it causes a neurological problem. You can see the puppies on the left have wobbly legs and a domed head in each pair of photographs. Um, and it has some similarities to a human neurological condition that may mean that there's something to be learned from studying the pups um, for human disease too. Um, but the reason I really put it up is to show you this family tree. Now, I'm not going to go into details, but um, you're probably all familiar with seeing family trees with husbands and wives and their progeny and then all marrying off, forming a tree, a branching, widening pattern. Um, and in general, on family trees, and you see that's certainly not what's happening here. In general, on family trees, loops are a bad thing because it means relatives have been bred with relatives. Um, and if you look at this picture, you can see numerous loops. And there was an enormous amount of, of crossing between grandparents and their <laughs> grandchildren, between aunts, between half-siblings even within this pedigree. And unfortunately, that meant that a, a mutation that popped up in the round circle, which indicates a, a, a female dog up kind of top left, was then propagated through the breed. And, and that wasn't a problem while it was a silent, what we call recessive mutation. But as soon as it became common enough that it, there were pairs of dogs being bred who carried the abnormal 
um, gene, then it meant that these pups marked in black popped up who were affected by this really nasty and life-ending condition. Um, and so it's an example of how breeding within families is a bad idea, um, particularly between close relatives. And unfortunately, because of those pinch points introduced by the Victorians when they put a very limited pool of dogs in to be the founder members of modern breeds. Essentially, with all modern dog breeds, we're talking about big families. Um, and it means that this kind of enrichment for disease-causing alleles can, can be quite common, particularly in smaller breeds. So just to kind of summarise what I've told you, um, after domestication from the wolf, there was probably initially very self-selecting um, breeding to village dogs who, who thrived because they could digest food and tolerate humans a bit. Over the years, breed formation happened, but there was also a lot of mixing between different breeds and different populations and dogs from different parts of the world, and even backcrossing to wolves, we believe, as well. And it was only when the Victorians got involved that there was this... Um, craze for showing and rulemaking and narrow pinch points, which meant that um, only a few show dogs formed the founder members of the modern dog breeds. And, and that's why we have such a high instance of inherited disease in our modern um, show dog, well, our modern dog breeds. Fortunately, it's not all completely doom and gloom, because over the last 20 years or so, the genetic tools have come on board so that we can track down the mutations causing these disorders, particularly where only one gene, one mutation is responsible. Um, and actually, the quirks of dog breeding and the fact that there is such little, across the, the species, like in the picture on the left, there's an awful lot of diversity. But within species, like over here, there's actually very little diversity in dog breeds. And so it's quite easy to pick out an orange spot in a a disease-causing mutation against a fairly uniform background in a way that it would be much harder to pick out an orange spot quickly from the left-hand image. And so um, that means that uh, there are now hundreds of genetic tests available to dog breeders so that they can um, test and remove from the test the disease-causing genes and remove those dogs or reduce the use of those dogs in their breeding programs to try and reduce the incidence of inherited disease in dogs. It also means, because of this um, ability to pick out disease-causing mutations rather more simply in dogs than you can in more diverse populations like human populations, it means that we can sometimes find the mutations that cause disease in dogs more quickly and more easily than you could by studying humans with the same disease. And I've got a few examples of that coming up next. Um, in the far panel from me, you can see a golden retriever, and, and these guys are prone to uh, a kind of scaling, itchy skin disease called ichthyosis. It's not terribly debilitating to golden retrievers, but owners don't like having scale all over their carpets, and dogs can get quite nasty secondary infections. Um, and because it was it within the breed, a French group were able just a few years ago to um, find the gene responsible. It's called PMPLA1. Um, and that's something that's being taken forward within golden retrievers to reduce the incidence of the disease. But also they were able to look for mutations in that very same gene in human families who were affected by a similar ichthyosis-like condition. And in human families, it, it's... Um, a very unusual condition, but it can be passed down. And because it's quite debilitating, it's slightly disfiguring and it's uncomfortable and it can cause um, nasty infections where there's a breakdown of the skin barrier, then it's really very valuable that the findings in dogs directly led to people identifying mutations in the very same gene in a number of human families. And that has very real um, and positive benefits for them because by knowing which gene is responsible, they can go for genetic counselling, think about how to reduce that um, in subsequent generations from the same family. The right-hand panel um, shows a, a less well-joined-up 
um, disease. The nice thing about the left-hand paper is that the same investigators who found the dog gene also looked in humans. In this case, it was actually some colleagues from down the road in Newmarket who identified a bunch of Parsons Jack Russells who have a tendency to become twitchy and stiff um, as a consequence of quite a, a severe degenerative condition of um, their spine and brain tissue. Um, and they identified the gene responsible. Um, uh, it's called spinocerebellar ataxia. It has a slightly different name in humans, but the same basic condition causes this part of the brain to be small in some human families. And again, it's a very rare condition in human families, difficult to track the gene down. But once it had been identified in dogs, people then screened the same gene in families and found a number who were affected by the same kind of mutation. I'm going to hopefully give you a little bit of a break from my voice <coughs> um, by playing you this really quite nice video of the kind of original and best example <coughs> of people studying dogs to find a mutation that's important in humans. Um, but as I say, I'm not really sure if it's going to work. Well, unfortunately, it looks like we're not going to have a slide, so you're going to have to put up with me for a couple of minutes. Um, so what you can see here is a, a pair of Dobermans who were being studied um, in, in California, in Stanford, I think, um, and a chap called Emmanuel Mignot um, who, who uh, had identified that in Dobermans, a condition called narcolepsy was um, much less common than in humans, where it, it is quite common, but it did run in families in dogs. And this little guy has a tendency, when he gets excited, by something as minor as some good canned food, as they call it on the um, video, <laughs> to fall asleep. <laughs> and you don't have to worry if he runs away, because he gets excited about making a break for freedom. <laughs> and collapses. And there's some shared heritage between Daxies and Dobermans. <laughs> and we see exactly the same things. There are some really sweet videos of pairs of young Dobermans um, playing together and, um, and getting really excited and obviously having a great time and then just collapsing into a heap both on top of each other because they, they simply don't know um, what to do next. Right. Um, and actually, the end of that video that I didn't show you is, is a really lovely interview with the, the researcher involved who said it was a hell of a job, and, and it really was, because they discovered this gene back in 1999 when positional cloning and the effort to try and find, find a gene for a disease, even in dogs where it's a bit simpler, was absolutely heroic. But he said they found it, and he was so pleased because it had the prospect of um, really altering treatment for humans. And actually, by two years later, human beings with similar mutations have been identified. And indeed, now there is uh, a whole uh, range of drugs which target the brain system identified first in Dobermans and successfully treats, um, treats human beings with, with narcolepsy. And you know, it makes us laugh when we see a, a daxi collapsing in the wet of a corridor, but you can imagine that the similar condition in humans would be extraordinarily debilitating. To have a, an un, undesired sleep at excitable moments it is really disastrous for human patients with this condition. Um, but all of those examples that I've shown you are, are kind of really the low-hanging fruit. These are single genes causing single diseases, and they were the kind of relatively the easier ones to find. Um, Actually, the majority of disease in humans and animals are caused are what we call complex diseases. They're caused by m m changes in many, many genes all coming together to form a kind of perfect storm of genetic abnormality which predisposes to a particular condition. And usually, they require uh, environmental influences as well. Um, and once again, that's something that's really difficult to recapitulate in a laboratory animal. You can't tweak a hundred different genes in a mouse, not in a, a very practical way, um, all at the same time and provide the perfect storm of environmental influences to cause them to get a particular disease. However, my patients, my veterinary patients, um, do all of this by themselves spontaneously because of the small gene pools within modern breeds and because they share an environment with their human owners. Complex diseases exist and are studyable and there are some early examples, including from, from my work, that that it's not an unreasonable thing to think that we will have more success 
finding new genes in, or as much success finding new genes in dogs than, than we would by directly studying human populations. Even so, I think I kind of set myself up quite for, for a hard one um, by studying obesity. Um, and actually, if you've had half an eye on the news over the last few years, you'll know that obesity is a big problem. Um, and in human populations, the obesity epidemic is causing um, a, a lot of, uh, a, a big toll on public health budgets and, and on individuals' lives because of the intendant um, heart disease, stroke and diabetes that come with it. And actually, we see a very similar um, picture in the canine world as well. A recent study suggested that 65%, two-thirds of pet dogs are overweight or obese, and, um, and it causes just the same sort of sense of outrage and, and kind of cross headlines um, when it comes to pet obesity as human obesity. And I think probably the reason for that is that we all know what causes obesity, don't we? Too much of this and not enough of that. Um, and that's true. The basic physics of this energy balance equation that no individual becomes overweight unless they eat more in calories than they burn off in exercise um, is unassailable. Um, but what we know from a good 25 years worth of intensive study of um, human obesity physiology in animal models and in humans themselves is that actually it's a lot more complicated than that. And it's better really to regard um, the development of obesity as the body's normal efforts to maintain um, a, a safe and healthy energy balance throughout the year gone awry. So what should normally happen is that hormonal and nutritional cues from the periphery giving information about recent food intake and how much energy is laid down in fat uh, is integrated in a very ancient part of the brain called the hypothalamus and translated into the kind of complex responses that we're all aware of in terms of going to the vending machine to get a chocolate bar or, or making a more healthy food choice. And certainly genes have the potential to act at almost every level of that system. And it's worth remembering that it was a system that evolved at a time over you know, hundreds of thousands of years where um, food resources were scarce and it took an awful lot more effort than today to get hold of them. And so in this kind of context, eating a lot in times of plenty to lay down some fat reserves to draw on in a time of fasting that was likely to come made a lot of sense. Unfortunately, when we take that genetic background into the modern world with an environment where we can all get access to high calorie cheap food um, very easily, then we see the recent increase in obesity rates that all the news um, focuses on. And what we know is that genes are really important. Certainly for all of us in this room, we have a, um, our tendency to become obese is between 40 and 70% down to our genes. Um, studies that manage to dissect out the relative contributions of your family environment from your genetics have time and again shown that very robustly. And certainly the same seems to be true in dogs. There's an obesity epidemic, it's becoming more common. The same environmental influences of ready, readily available food and less exercise come into play. But the fact that we see obesity rates much higher in some breeds of dogs than others suggests that genes are important. Now, I imagine there's at least a few dog lovers in here, and it won't come as any surprise to those of you who are that when I decided to study the genetics of obesity, I started with Labradors. These are the nation's favorite dog breed. They're the nation's most obese dog breed. And if you ask pets, if you ask vets, if you ask owners, if you ask anyone really why these dogs are prone to obesity, they say, well, that's obvious, they're really greedy. Um, but what I'm interested in is how a whole breed can be greedy and what dominates that genetically. And so a few years ago now, I started collecting some samples um, from thin dogs who weren't that fussed about their food, and believe it or not, there are some Labradors who aren't that fussed about their food, um, and very food-motivated, overweight dogs. And I did a very simple kind of um, genetic study where we just looked at some genes that we thought might be involved um, in this food motivation, and lo and behold, found a mutation in a gene called POMC, which was fairly uncommon in the thin dogs and really quite common in the overweight dogs. And it was a, a real kind of smoking gun when it came to potentially causing 
Labrador's greediness because it affects um, a system that is involved in integrating those peripheral cues of energy um, status um, in the brain and translating them into um, real behaviours to do with food intake. And so what normally happens is that fat cells, which I've drawn as those little yellow blobs on the far side, produce a hormone called leptin, and they produce more leptin as they get fuller and as a, a person gets fatter or a dog gets fatter. And that hormone travels in the blood to the brain where it triggers the release of um, and the, the production of this gene POMC. And that um, is subsequently um, kind of chopped up into little bits. I'll show you a diagram of that later. And acts downstream in a chain reaction in the brain that ultimately leads to um, the turning off of hunger, reduced food seeking, and also increased energy expenditure, both in exercise and in sort of underlying metabolic rate. And so this is a, a body system that normally says it's okay, you've got plenty of fat reserves laid down in case there's no food next week, you don't have to keep eating. It turns off hunger. The Labrador mutation effectively <coughs> busts POMC. Um, and so it would be predicted to produce exactly the kind of behaviours that owners of highly food-motivated Labradors do because this um, break on hunger is no longer functioning. Now, of course, I only found this in a small group of dogs, and so I went on to test in a much larger cohort of around 300 Labradors um, the effect of the mutation on body weight, on, on how much fat they carried. Um, and what we showed is that for each copy of the mutation that they had, they were about two kilograms heavier, meaning that dogs with two copies of the mutation were kind of four kilos, two bags of spuds worth, um, heavier than their wild-type <laughs> counterparts when all other things were equal. But of course, we studied them because of this legendary high food motivation, their willingness to do anything um, in the pursuit of food. Um, so the first thing I did was um, very carefully and painstakingly um, validate a questionnaire that asked owners about these kind of behaviours in the home. And when I did that, sure enough, dogs who carried the mutation scored more highly, spent more time pestering their owners for food. Um, and, and that's probably the major driver for these dogs' obesity, that they just care more about food and put more effort into getting it. But actually, that's not really good enough for me. I'm a scientist. I like numbers. I like things to be a wee bit more kind of defined. And because there is some interest that I'll explain later in, in the nuances of the biology of POMSI, then I wanted to try and test experimentally what those behaviours were and, and um, which aspects of food-seeking behaviour were there, were, were different in dogs with the mutation. There isn't supposed to be any sound on this one, so we're okay. Um, what you can see is my colleague Gabby taking a hot dog sausage and sealing it tightly in a hamster cage, and Boody, this nice chocolate Labrador here, is interested in the sausage, there's no doubt about it, but she fairly quickly works out that she isn't going to be able to get inside the box and kind of goes off to explore this new environment. Um, and although during the five minutes of the trial she did keep returning to the box, um, it wasn't with any particular determination. Contrast that, if you will, with Ash. Booty. <laughs> she too was shown the sausage, and she spent he, I think, spent the in, he spent the entire of his five minutes pestering at this box and working so hard. Sometimes trying to request help from the humans <laughs> in the building. Come on, this is ridiculous. And doing everything he could. <laughs> I would say that the gaffer tape was, you know, introduced partway through this protocol because some dogs did get in the box. Some dogs broke the box. Um, Ash didn't get quite that far. But there's certainly no difference, uh, no question in my mind that there's a very... <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's certainly no question in my mind that there's a very real difference between those two dogs. And, and of course I've um, chosen you a pretty unfussed dog who was wild type for the mutation, who didn't have it, and Ash, who was completely obsessed with the box, um, did have a copy of this POMC mutation. Um, but, but 
you know, and, and of course the contrast between them is, is very clear. But actually what happens when we do this kind of behavioral research is that Gabby took these videos and then went home and analyzed them frame by frame so that we could quantify these kind of behaviors, interacting the box, pouring at it, eating it, or ignoring it. Um, and, and put numbers on that, make graphs, do statistics, all the things that make scientists happy. And sure enough, there is a statistically significant difference in the behavior of dogs with and without mutation um, in their interaction with the box. And we've done similar um, experiments to show that dogs with this mutation will also eat marginally more when faced with a big bowl of food. Um, but they don't seem to have any difference in the amount that they like their food. They kind of still discriminate between foods. Um, I think I'm doing just about okay for time. I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the clock at the back. Um, I've got a couple of kind of population-based coders um, about this Labrador policy story um, to share with you. You know, if you ask pet owners, they'll say that all Labradors are really greedy. Um, this mutation that I found is present in about a quarter of pet Labradors. So I've gone some way to explaining this food motivation that's legendary within the breed, but I certainly haven't found um, the entirety of the answer, and, and I'm working on the rest of it um, as we speak. What was really striking, though, was that when we looked in the UK guide dog population, the mutation was much more common. And in fact, dogs with just one copy of the mutation were disproportionately more common. And, and what that said to me is that perhaps there is something about having one copy of this mutation possibly two, that makes you more likely to be selected as a guide dog. And actually, that figures, because these guys are kind of the elite Navy SEALs of the dog world. They're trained from early in puppyhood to do all sorts of complicated things, usually with positive reinforcement, with small food rewards. So perhaps if you're a genetically hungry dog, you're that much more willing to work for food and ultimately to pass your exams to become a guide dog um, when you reach kind of uh, maturity. We did, of course, look for the mutation in other breeds of dog, um, and it only popped up in a very close relative of Labradors, the flat-coated retriever. Here it's actually a bit more common. We were able to look at it on a molecular level and see that the mutation had come from a common ancestor. And that common ancestor was probably one of these guys, a St. John's water dog. And they were fishermen's dogs in 16th, 17th century Newfoundland. And their job was to leap into the icy waters of Newfoundland to retrieve the fishermen's nets. So we can kind of build up a picture here that perhaps if this mutation arose in a St. John's water dog, if it got a bit fat, well, a layer of blubber under his skin wouldn't have done any harm in those kind of harsh, harsh conditions. Um, and actually a willingness to work for any rotten fish head that came his way might have been quite a, a, a thing that made them popular and indeed may well have been something that made um, these dogs popular as gun dogs because they were willing, trainable and willing to work for food. And it even seems to have an influence in the modern um, guide dog population. It also possibly is partly why we find them such appealing pets. You know, certainly giving our animals food is, is a very um, effective way to, to strengthen the human-animal bond. And, and in a breed who are so food-motivated, I think that effect is even more extreme. Um, but unfortunately, it also predisposes Labradors to this very debilitating obesity, which has real knock-on consequences because overweight dogs are prone to getting arthritis and breathing difficulties, incontinence, skin diseases, hormonal diseases, they have higher blood pressure, a whole plethora of problems which mean that obesity is a, a real and, and um, welfare-threatening health problem in the species I see. Um, it also, this mutation, places Labradors as an animal model of human disease. And, and realistically, it's that role which made me a cover model when this story was published for the first and only time in my life I'll ever be on the front of a magazine, I think. Um, and the reasons that the neurobiologists and the obesity biologists were interested in the Labrador Pomsey mutation comes down to some nuances in Pomsey biology that I hope won't bore you and, and I'll explain over the next few slides. Because essentially the dog gene is closer to humans in this case than the mouse gene. 
and that allows us to shed light on some previously pretty hard to access bits of human obesity biology. So I mentioned earlier that POMC was a, a complicated gene. Um, essentially, genes are made into long chains of molecules called proteins, and that's what I've what happens in, in the case of POMC, but usually those just fold up and go off and do their job. But in the case of POMC, at the sites where I've drawn arrows on this diagram, it's chopped up um, until ultimately these much shorter end products are the active bits of the protein which do the jobs that we attribute to the gene POMC. And human beings um, produce um, multiple um, of those end products, but the headline acts when it comes to obesity biology are these two, alpha and beta MSH. And they're important because they act in that signaling pathway that I spoke to you about earlier. So both alpha and beta MSH act in here to trigger this um, break on hunger and a reduction in food intake and a change in energy expenditure. And we know that both alpha and beta MSH are important in human beings because if you're a human who doesn't make normal alpha MSH or normal beta MSH, then um, you're very hungry and obese early on in life. And that's a very um, serious um, condition for affected um, patients and families. Mice, however, are a bit different. Somewhere in their evolution, they picked up a change in the POMC gene down this line so that they only produce alpha MSH and get on perfectly well without beta MSH in any mice or rats anywhere. And as a consequence, it's never been possible in conventional animal models to try and dissect out the relative contribution of alpha versus beta in this complicated signaling pathway. Enter the Labradors, and they're much more like humans in that normal dogs, normal Labradors, produce both alpha and beta MSH. But critically, the mutation that I found in the Labradors kicks in where that red bar um, is drawn on the um, initial gene product and therefore stops production of beta MSH in affected dogs. But they still make normal alpha. So what we hope is that by comparing dogs with and without the mutation, we can attribute the difference between them to the effect of beta MSH and therefore try and understand some of the nuances of signaling through this pathway. And that's really important at the moment because this um, part of the chain reaction in the brain is a real active site where drug companies are developing um, molecules that will substitute for normal alpha and beta MSH and try and um, be a drug that will slow down hunger and treat obesity. And in a context where we don't really know what alpha does, what beta does um, in human beings, anything that we can contribute from the dogs has potential value. And that's why it's um, something really interesting to be involved with at the moment and why we're pursuing these experiments to really try and get fine detail on what the consequences of the Labrador Pomsey mutation does. So I've just got a summing up slide left. Um, and um, it's been quite a kind of spin through some fairly general things tonight and, and some more very specific biology of my own research. But essentially, to me, I, I just am endlessly fascinated by the fact that, that our modern pet breeds have come from wolves via this long history of companionship and, and um, utility to be these modern creatures that we see in the show ring today. Um, with enormous diversity, but unfortunately a high burden of genetic disease because of the um, pinch points that the Victorians introduced by setting up the Kennel Club and so on. Um, as a geneticist, those diseases um, are also potentially um, a puzzle for me to solve, both for the benefit of dogs but also for humans because of the utility of, um, uh, of dogs as a, a model of human disease. Um, and we've seen nice examples of that in our sleepy Dobermans um, and in my own research from the Labradors where this kind of really appealing set of behaviours or irritating, if you ask Woody's owner, um, set of behaviours <laughs> um, predisposes dogs to obesity but also 
gives them a role um, as models of human disease. So I hope that's been interesting. Um, science, of course, doesn't happen without people and without money. Um, and there have been a huge team that have worked on this um, and um, lots of scientists and colleagues at the Institute of Metabolic Science and elsewhere who've contributed samples and ideas to the project. And my funding, um, rather pleasingly, comes from a mixture of the Wellcome Trust who are interested in human disease and Dogs Trust because they're interested in the impact of obesity on canine welfare, um, as well as the MRC. Um, but the real people to thank are the dogs and the owners who've um, given their time and, and enthusiasm to the project. Um, because we've had over a thousand people donate their dog spit to our um, DNA <laughs> bank by now. Um, and most of those have been to their local vets and had their dog's condition scored and so on. We're really very grateful to them all. I am, of course, always on the lookout for more volunteers. So if anybody um, has, uh, uh, particularly at the moment, we're interested in Labradors and flat-coated retrievers and golden retrievers, and then dogs with short noses. So um, we're studying pugs and French bulldogs and English bulldogs. But actually, anybody um, who would like to get involved can go to our website and take our questionnaire because actually we're quite um, keen to collect data from dogs that are crossbreeds or single breeds. Um, so if any of that appeals, either go to our website or on the table outside or here, I have some little cards with our website that can send you in the right direction as well so you can find them afterwards. Good. I have overrun, but we do have about six minutes for questions. Brilliant. We've, we've got strict instructions to wait for the microphone, so maybe if we start with the lady in the blue down here. Uh, how long does it take for genes to change or mutate? Because I'm, I mean, it would be over 60 years. I'm thinking back to why we hardly ever saw anybody obese in the 1950s, and now we do. Well, that's down to the way our environment has changed, because um, genes change very slowly, but our environment has changed very rapidly over the last 50 years or so. So there's been a huge shift in the availability of junk food um, at cheap prices and huge changes societally in how people eat and find their food. So, so there's no question that increasingly sedentary lifestyles and um, increased availability of food is the major reason for the current obesity epidemic. But it is worth studying the genetics because that will lead us to understand why some people are susceptible and others aren't, and therefore how we can help particular groups of people um, to survive and stay slim in this obesogenic environment that we find ourselves in. Do you think that the dogs with the mutation are actually more hungry? Because speaking as a fat human, I know that hunger's got very little to do with why I eat too much. Okay. I don't um, feel hungry all the time, yeah. but I eat too much. Sure. Um, yes, I do. Um, the, this pathway has been terribly well studied in multiple species, and um, as I say, there are some humans who have mutations in this brain pathway as well, and they report extreme hunger, and, and they talk about um, toddlers who are violent and will break kitchen cupboards with padlocks on them in their pursuit of food. And this is a very extreme thing, and, and probably the Labradors are experiencing something similar to that, although not quite as extreme. Um, there is also some evidence that across the population, in general, people who tend to eat more and become overweight do experience and respond to food quite differently. And part of that is that some people feel hungrier than others. Um, quite genuinely, but that's that's a population-wide thing, not an individual thing. Shall we take one from up here? Hello, I have one of these phenomenally um, hungry, perpetually hungry black Labradors who will drool that even if you walk into the kitchen almost. Mm -hmm. um, she's also developed, she's quite overweight, but she's developed these um, lumps of fat underneath her skin. Is that anything to do with the promising mutation? Probably not. That's probably just an old dog getting lumps of fat under their skin thing. Um, but it's a really nice story to hear, actually, to, to make the point that you can have a phenomenally hungry dog who you keep slim if you're completely on it with the management. It just is a lot harder if you've got a very food-motivated dog than if you've got a fussy Yorkshire Terrier. Down here? Or no, up here. Great. Um, so kind of building on that, I was just wondering how you as a vet kind of see what solution you see for this kind of pre-existing 
position of Labrador to just be hungry. Is there any kind of treatment for that, or is? Well, I've got kind of a two-part response to that. I mean, essentially, any dog can stay thin if you don't give them too much food and they get masses of exercise. From talking to people of, who own dogs with this mutation, the ones who seem to keep them slim most successfully with happy dogs tend to do it by giving them masses of exercise and therefore being able to be a little bit more flexible about food. But basically, it comes down to food restriction. Um, and I think, actually, the, the thing I, I am aware of in the Labradors is that there is a bit of tension. When we're taught, as vet students, about animal welfare, we're taught about the five freedoms, one of which is freedom from hunger and one of which is freedom from disease. And there's a real tension here, because if we keep these dogs thin, they're hungry, but they're free from obesity. And if we keep them free from hunger, then they're going to become obese. And, and I don't think there's a right answer there particularly, but probably the balance comes down on keeping them slim, but trying to um, think about how to manage their hunger. So there are foods that promote satiety, designed for weight loss, but they genuinely work. They promote the feeling of fullness. You can give them puzzle feeders. You can feed them tiny amounts of food out of puzzle feeders through the day so they get to feel they're getting something, but actually they're not getting many calories. So I think there are ways in which we can try and balance the tensions between freedom from hunger and disease. Um, maybe down here. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Thank you. We have two chocolate Labradors. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're mad. They're full brothers, same litter. One of them is moderately interested in food, and the other one, you can't keep him away from food. He's in the kitchen when I'm cooking, and he's at my legs. How do you explain the difference in that they're effectively twins? Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, they're not twins, importantly, so they're not genetically identical. They're likely to share 50% of their genetic material as siblings, but it's not unreasonable to think that one of them might have the POMC mutation and one of them doesn't. And there's clearly masses else going on governing greediness in Labradors, and as I say, I'm working on it. Um, but maybe there's, if one of them has multiple um, factors which predispose them to, to that food motivation and one just through sheer genetic chance doesn't, because they only share 50% of their genes, then, then it, it, it doesn't surprise me. And in fact, I love hearing stories like that because it really reassures me that this is a dog thing, not an upbringing thing. <laughs> There's a hand been up over there for a long time. Hi, I was just wondering, um, could you treat dogs by injecting the um, non-defective MSH into them and or uh, have you thought about trying to do CRISPR-Cas9 type uh, gene editing to see if you could um, definitively show it was that gene that was showing it? Yeah. Um, so, so yes, in theory, if we replaced the missing beta MSH with a drug that targeted the same system, yes, in theory, that could happen. And, and those drugs are actually out there because they've been developed for humans. And, and actually, because that's what happens in drug development, they've often been given to dogs previously, and they've shown that they eat less when they're given the drug. So, so yes, there are drug options. Actually, proteins are difficult, and you have to give them by injection, and owners aren't going to want to do that. And, and actually, should we be medicating a dog when you can just feed it less? And you know, all of those kind of questions come up. Um, my research is very much based in spontaneously occurring conditions in people's pet dogs, and, and that sits very comfortably with me as a researcher. I'm, I'm not in any way against the kind of laboratory animal models that we see but I'm not about to start tinkering with the Andrex puppy's brain so I can see how these systems work. You know, it, it, it wouldn't be acceptable to society, and frankly, it wouldn't sit very well with me either. So, so I'm not going to start CRISPR-Casing Labradors, but my goodness, it would be interesting if you could. <laughs> so. There's only maybe one more in here. Hi, uh, with the guide dogs, you've got a population who are very highly monitored by their local vets and with food um, weighing on each meal. Mm -hmm. So do you still see higher levels of obesity because you've also identified that the high levels of gene in that population mm -hmm. or does the, the, the vet intervention and the food intervention actually control obesity within that small population? You've identified one of my biggest problems with this population. Sorry. My data would have been much more impressive had I taken the guide dogs out. Because always obesity is a condition 
that, in, yes, is driven perhaps by a dog who will overeat, but that um, is ultimately controlled by how much food it gets. And, and so it's a beast of a, a phenotype of a condition to choose to study, but it's really interesting, so I did it anyway. Um, and what we found with the guide dogs, and actually these were guide dog breeding stocks, so they were even more intensively managed, was that none of them were allowed to get really fat, but actually quite a lot of them got a bit fat. And quite a lot of them were under veterinary care for their tendency to get fat. So perhaps they'd got fat in the past and then been reined in or whatever. So it is a problem and they get a bit porky, but they're never allowed to get properly fat. <coughs> Lovely. Right, no more questions. I'm getting kill it um, signs from the back of the room. Thank you all very much for coming and I'm here. <laughs> if you want me.